The Send Network podcast is brought to you by the Send Network, a digital community for Send practitioners to connect and collaborate. To find out more, head over to the send-network.co.uk. Welcome to the Send Network podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined for a very special series with award-winning consultant and trainer, Cheryl Bedding. Cheryl is the founder and director of Aperion Training, where she provides support for professionals to create inclusive and inspiring environments. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. So today is the first part of a three-part series discussing the three C's of supporting neurodivergent children. So Cheryl, my first question, what are the three C's we are going to be discussing? So the three C's that we are going to be discussing are connection, consideration and consistency. So making sure that everything that we are doing, all of the support that we are providing, all of our um, our culture, our provision is really reflective of those, ensuring that we're able to deliver really effective quality neuroinclusive practice. Brilliant. And so this this episode is going to be uh, discussing connection. But before we get on to discussing this, I just wanted to set this conversation up in the framework that you work with. Um, so I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the myth of good behaviour. What do you mean when you refer to um, refer to this myth? There is a sort of train of thought and perspective that a lot of our neurodivergent conditions um, are behavioural conditions Um, and they are not behavioural conditions. The behaviours that we see are a reflection and response to the situation that a lot of our children are in. So whenever I'm delivering some training or I'm I'm speaking with staff within, within settings or with childminders, a lot of the support strategies they're looking for tend to be around the behaviours. So it's reframing it and thinking, okay, well, why are the behaviours there? And actually, what is good behaviour and what is bad or inappropriate behaviour? Because it's very reflective of the situation that our children are in and where our children are at. Mm -hmm. If we reframe it by looking at the behaviour as a response to an unmet need or a need for something or to get away from something, we come at it at a very different, from a very different place. Um, Certainly when we're thinking about autism, uh, autism spectrum condition as a neurodivergent condition, um, it's around our social development, it's around the emotional development and cognitive development. It's not a behavioural disorder. So we need to think about how we reframe it, how we approach it, um, and thinking, I always talk about the why behind the behaviour, because there is a reason why. And actually it's our job to be that behaviour detective, to be that sensory um, detective, um, to find out what the triggers are, therefore thinking about how we can support the child better, potentially looking about how we can reflect back on ourselves as to what we can change, what we need to be thinking about, what we might need to alter um, in order for us to support that child who's in that state of dysregulation to reduce the amount of time they are dysregulated within our settings. So where does connection come into this? How can connection help us to respond to that need? Everything starts with connection. As human beings, we are designed to connect with other people. So for me, it's the 
it's the foundation of everything and, and all of the work that, that I do. Um, we have to think about how we can connect with our neurodivergent children because the connection with them may have to be slightly different to maybe how we have worked with, with other neurotypical children um, previously. The first thing we need to think about is making sure that we are supporting the child and not just the diagnosis. So we may have a child that comes to us, either who is on the pathway to diagnosis or who has a diagnosis already. Um, and we don't we, we need to come away from looking at that diagnosis on that piece of paper, because a lot of these conditions um, are, are presented very differently, present very differently in our children. There's a, a phrase that says, once you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Yeah. And I talk about quite a lot. It, it, you know, it's like saying, OK, well, I've looked after a George before. You know, 15 years ago, <laughs> I cared for a George in my setting. So I know yeah. what Georges want and what Georges need. And I know how to care for a George. Um, it's exactly the same. Yeah. So we need to get to know our individual children, um, how it presents in them. Yeah. Um, the first thing that we need to make sure that we are doing is providing time. Time to observe, time to understand, time with the parents and the caregivers to find out how that is presenting at home as well. And we can get a really good picture of how things are for this child. How are they sleeping? How are they eating? Mm. How are they responding in, in situations outside of the early years um, or school setting? So we need to make sure that our connections are really with the network of people around that child as well. Um, so allowing your, your, the key person, allowing the Senko the time to really observe, observe the child in different situations, observing the child in their responses to expectations, responses to stimulus, understand the potential triggers for that child in order for you to be able to connect with them making sure that if you have a child coming into your setting who has that on the, the, the application form that's been completed or in the discussions um, at show round or, or those first kind of um, connections with, between the parents and, and the staff, mm -hmm. making sure that settling in process is really effective for that child. Do they require more time? Mm -hmm. Do we need to provide them with more flexibility? Do we need to make sure, we, we talk a lot, don't we, about making sure that if, if we understand that the child has an interest in trains at home, then we have the train set set out at, uh, you know, within the setting. But also, do we need to think about what time of day they're coming in? Mm -hmm. Do we need to reduce the, the volume um, of the busyness of, of the setting when they're coming in to have a look around? Is it wise for them to maybe come in just before lunchtime? when we know that other children are gonna be starting to get a bit hungry and, and that impacts behavior, we know that because the nervous system um, is, is out of balance because we're hungry. The smells that are coming from the kitchen could be a trigger for the children. So do we really think about, okay, let's go a deeper dive into the settle here to really understand what this, this child needs, what this family needs as well. I hear quite often of families that have gone from setting to setting to setting because that specific place they were at were no longer able to meet that child's needs. So thinking about the parent that's gone from place to place and can't see how their child fits in, thinking about the time that you're offering that parent as well. So really understanding, really getting to know and make sure we're getting to know the child, not the diagnosis and meet the child where they are, mm -hmm. um, where they're at right now and support them. So 
as you've just described, it's looking at the broad picture um, to try and create, it almost sounds like you're, you're talking about it like the access points, right? Looking for these access points to make that connection. Um, and I wanted to ask how, how do we create healthy connections and is there a difference um, or well, what is the fundamental difference between a healthy connection and one that's, that's not healthy? Is it that balance that you were talking about? In terms of what is a healthy connection, I think we need to also think about what happens if it's not mm. a healthy connection because the impact of that is huge. Um, and our children, and, and again, us as, as human beings, from a psychological perspective, we all need to feel safe. Yeah. We all need to feel that we belong. Um, even more so for a child who has, who for a neurodivergent child who is living their life in a neurotypical world, a world that quite often doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so it's about ensuring that we understand that as our baseline and understand, as it talks about within, within birth to five, about that notion of felt safety creating that sense of, of felt safety for our children. Uh, you know, we all know about Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of need, the need for that at the bottom. You know, that's why we've got um, PSCD as one of our prime areas within the earliest foundation stage. Our children need to feel emotionally safe. And so when we're thinking about our, in, our environments and we're thinking about the smells and the visual stimulus and the, and the busyness and the transitions and all of those things, yes, it's about those things, but it's also about how they make children feel. Mm. So that starts from when they enter the building. You know, are they walking into a busy, messy corridor with things all over the place with, you know, lots of, of boards up on the wall with lots of stimulus around? Are they approaching, are they arriving into a, a space where they feel safe? So for me, that healthy connection starts from the beginning. That, like you say, that, that first access point. How do they feel when they come into the setting? Do they feel that they are being heard? Do they feel understood? Can we create that sense of belonging and that notion of felt safety for our children? So for a Senko then, working in a setting, is there an argument that, that environments need to be stripped back almost? Because you speak about, um, you know, that first entrance into the setting and there's things all over the place, things all over the wall, busyness. Can connection for a neurodivergent child be found more in simplicity? Of course, it's relative, but but really honing in on that focus as opposed to into that connection as opposed to you know overwhelming with with so many different forms of connection or potential connection yeah yeah and i think we'll certainly go into the environment a little bit more when we look at sort of consideration but yeah it, it's it's connection through that calm space yeah um and part of our understanding of connection is thinking about what the triggers might be for our children. And, you know, there's a there's a fantastic, really short but fantastic video clip um, on the National Autistic Society website. Um, and it's called Can You Make It to the End? And I often show it in my um, in my training sessions. It's a short video clip of a of a mum and her son walking through a shopping center. Um, 
and obviously the, the, the sensory stimulus is really highlighted in this space. Um, the smells of a, um, a somebody coming over at the perfume counter, um, somebody walking past with a big bunch of balloons and how they're squeaking together as they walk past, the busyness of the space, the shutting and opening of doors, um, the music coming out of different shops. And then what you walk past one shop and it's one type of music, a couple of meters along the road, uh, along the path, there's another shopping center with some different music going on. Um, and what you see at the end is this child just having this meltdown in the middle of the shopping centre and all the sound and stimulus goes away. Mm-hmm. So all we see is that dysregulated behaviour. Mm-hmm. And an old, a, a lady walks past and rolls her eyes at you know this child that is behaving this way. Um, but all of those things are a factor. Mm-hmm. So if we can, if we can reduce... and and minimize and potentially completely eliminate those triggers, we are preventing the amount of times a child is becoming dysregulated in our our setting. And that's what we all want, Mm. right? We want our children to feel calm, to feel safe, because once we feel emotionally safe, we can then go freely to explore, to investigate, to problem solve and play and learn and develop. So we need that as a starting point. So Yes, there is a part of it, of it being stripped back, but again, it's not about providing these sparse, bland spaces. Um, but it's about just thinking just a little bit about the impact of that stimulus. Yeah. Just doing that audit, just putting yourself in that in that space for a minute, because it it will be a trigger. And yeah, and this leads really nicely onto um, onto co regulation and the importance of that for connection. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. It, Came, came out, didn't it, 2021, self-regulation within the Early Years Foundation stage. And certainly for a lot of our um, Early Years educators, it's a fairly new term. Um, self-regulation is not a skill that we are born with. It's a skill that we develop and learn um, through effective co-regulation. Um, so that's through our adults around us modeling um, and supporting us when we are having those big feelings. Um, and self-regulation is about the ability to be able to um, support ourselves when we are going through those those big emotions and, and the appropriate response in those big emotions. For a lot of our neurodivergent children, that's tricky. Yeah. Because when we're thinking about children, certainly there's there's a, um, a statistic that says that 95% of our autistic children have sensory processing disorder alongside, and quite often that's linked to the um, how tricky it is to be able to regulate our emotions um, through our. Um, through in within with regards to to our development, so there has to be that extra level of of work and understanding, and that ability to to co regulate and support our children. So it's really talking a lot about how our children are responding to situations. It, quite often, people say to me, "But what you're saying, Cheryl, is that our children, neurodivergent children, can do what they want when they want, and it doesn't matter." Our children still need to understand the appropriate responses in situations, certainly when we are lashing out at other people or we are running off because we're just, we we are literally in that fight or flight response and we need to run away from this potentially life-threatening situation. Um, So we need to look at how we can, how we can support that. So it's really about making sure that we have really good visuals, 
really good modeling that help our children to understand what they can do. But also it's about validating those emotions, understanding that our children will get angry and frustrated, possibly a little bit quicker than some of our neurotypical children. So really making sure, and and a lot of of the the self-regulation strategies that we can support all of our children to be involved with also support our neurodivergent children. So this is not doing something differently. Um, I was delivering some training on on Saturday and again on Monday, and we looked at some self-regulation strategies. And I had everybody laying on the floor with a teddy on their tummy. Mm -hmm. And we were doing time with our teddy. We were doing some deep breathing. But by having Teddy on our tummy, we can look at Teddy going up and down as we do the deep breathing. So a real visual for children in understanding how to take those deep breaths. Um, and, and other, you know, breathing techniques and, and going for a walk and stomping out if we're feeling really frustrated or really angry. But it's really supporting children in validating those those emotions, but also making sure that we're able to have the flexibility within our in our settings for a member of staff to maybe take that child for a walk, yeah. taking their shoes off, being you know outside on the grass, grounding and and really supporting them. But I think as well, we can only co-regulate if we are regulated ourselves. Yeah. And if we have a member of staff who has been dealing with and supporting a child who is in a high state of dysregulation for a long period of time, we need to understand how we can support that staff member, potentially in a takeover, because we know we can't feel from an empty cup. So if we are not regulated ourselves and we need some support to help take uh, support this child to become regulated again, then we might need some, some extra support in that. How would you recommend that um, that staff ensure that that's happening? Is there a way that they can communicate that need to each other? It's understanding yourself at, within that staff team. So our staff team, certainly when we have um, neurodivergent children within our room or within our setting, understanding how tough things can be yeah. sometimes, yes, for the child, but also for the staff in, in, in supporting that child. So it's having that really open, honest, supportive space, effective team that you are working with, regular communication, regular discussions, and providing that safe space for staff to say, I'm really struggling today, or I don't feel regulated myself today, I've got some stuff going on at home. So if Johnny is having a tough day, I might need somebody to help me to take over and support me in that and providing that safe space for member staff to be able to say that and ask for help and ask for support but when that you are supporting that child who is dysregulated um, we don't necessarily want to draw some more attention please come and help me I need some help over here so I quite often talk about code words so um, you know is it spaghetti bolognese for lunch today or um, is it Tuesday we're going on the trip so could it be that spaghetti or trip is the code word that says, ah, yep, yeah, okay, I need to come in. You know, Sarah's been dealing with, with Johnny for 20 minutes. She needs some support so somebody can come in and take over. Um, but it's also about knowing what your children need when they are dysregulated. Yeah. Some children need those big hugs and that comfort. Some children might need to go and sit by themselves in a dark den for a bit. Some children might not need an adult around them at all. Um, because you're going to add fuel to the fire. So again, it's knowing 
your children and what they need. It comes straight back to connection, doesn't it? Those really? access points and, and taking the audit of what, what the child needs and, and observing. I wanted to talk briefly about play because play can be a really great way to connect. Um, firstly, why is play so important? And, and what can a, a Senko or, or a teacher working in a setting, um, how can they adapt their play to make sure that they are focusing on those connections? Again, it goes back to meeting children where they are. Um, I'm asked frequently when I'm in settings or through my social media, how can we get the child to come and play? How can we get the child to, to come over to the sand tray or to join in with role play or, you know, to come and do some writing? Um, and I throw it back and kind of say, well, why? Let's observe Let's look at the child because they're playing. They're playing their way. We need to understand what that play looks like yeah. and how play is for that child. Um, so I was at a, at a nursery a little while back and they were saying that this little boy just goes around and taps, finds a couple of objects and we just go around and tapping within, um, within the nursery, the tables and the chairs and the doors and the soft play mats and, and everything. And they said, well, how can we get him to stop tapping and come and play? Why would you? Yeah. He's playing. Join his play. Mm. Follow his lead in the play. So I invited them to go and tap with him. I said, figure out what it is that he's getting from the tapping. Is it that sensory feedback shooting up his arms as he's, as he's tapping? Is that providing him with a regulation strategy because it's a busy, noisy, you know, nursery, preschool space? Is he actually investigating how different things sound? Is he playing with rhythm? Can you, if, if you're close enough and you're observing and you're listening and you're following, you might pick up on some rhythm. So follow him. I said, and connect where he is, where he's at. I said, and trust me, trust me, that little boy will come over to the sand tray with you because you have validated his play. You have said that his play type is fantastic yeah. and is great. Yeah. So follow his lead. So she did. She went round and all the sounds that he made, she tapped. And there was eye contact. There was connection. And after a while, there was that lead into, into the play. Because um, I said to her, I said, you know, if you're moving around the nursery and you're tapping and you tap alongside the sand tray and then you build a sandcastle and you tap on the sandcastle and it falls down, I would probably hazard a guess that after a while, whatever he's playing with will be popped aside and, yeah. and it, it will happen. Yeah. So validate, join it, mm. connect through it. Mm. And we can look at things like schematic play, um, parallel play, play alongside, build that connection, validate where they are, meet them where they are. The connection will come. You will then become a trusted adult. That child will then come to you when things get tough, when things are fun and they want to do, to do them with you because you are their trusted adult. So if we can connect through play, it can be that way in. Sure. And to building it, it that relationship. runs parallel, as you said previously, with validating emotions and feelings. And play, I'd imagine, is such a great way to physically meet a child on their level, literally, whether that's in a sand pit or 
playing with Play-Doh or whatever that is. That's such a, a great story to end on. Thank you so much. I wanted to just ask, as we do draw to a close, what your main takeaways are from this conversation. I think the three main takeaways for me are we have to get to know the individual child, not the diagnosis. Get to know them for who they are, where they are, um, as a way to connect. Um, create that open, honest, connected team as your support network. Um, it, it, it's not easy. We're in tricky times within the sector. Um, so we need to provide that safe space for, for our staff team. Um, and I think just making sure that we are connecting through where the child is. Meet them where they are, not where you expect them to be, but right where they are. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Cheryl. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Send Network podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And for more information, head over to the send-network.co.uk.